Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Grinds Head Podcast. I've been struggling with podcast formats for years. Um, I have done uh, at least a dozen different formats over the last five years. I'm not kidding. Um, almost six years. Actually, six years. Yeah. And I've, I've done all different kinds of podcasts, different kinds of AMAs, different kinds of like vlogs. And I've been trying to figure out what it is that I should be uh, emulating where a, a podcast format is concerned for me. And what I struggle with is like, do you do one podcast about music? Do you do one, one about games? Do you do one about... Because a lot of podcasts, they are very laser focused on one thing or another. And that's great. I'm not. I'm not that guy. I mean, am I like a Destiny player? I'm a Destiny streamer most of the time? Sure. But I love, during those streams, I love talking about a wide array of topics. And I really enjoy um, just a ton of different things all within that, uh, those confines. So I felt like if I'm going to do a podcast, then it needs to be reflective of that. Um, by the way, song requests are active. They just won't show us playing up there. You'll be able to hear them, and I'm recording this separately. So you won't be able to uh, hear that on the final podcast product. So for you live folks, that's going to be something for you. So you're not going to disrupt the podcast. You're not going to fuck me up. Don't worry about it. Just let that happen. Let it happen. All right? So um, I kind of decided that I needed a podcast that was just me and not necessarily just me in it because I'm going to have people on here, but whatever I wanted it to reflect, basically, whether that be politics, whether that be music, whether that be um, gaming, technology, whatever the fuck is on my mind. Um, so today, like in light of like the Destiny servers being down for a couple hours, I knew I was going to be playing that. So I said, all right, I'm going to take the downtime. And I'm going to take a little bit out of what would normally be the morning show. And I'm going to look into, okay, do I finally want to make this a real thing? And one of the things that had been holding me back from doing a real podcast is that I don't like Podbean. I do not like um, most of the major podcast services out there, iTunes included. Though I will probably be submitting this to iTunes. Um, but I wanted something that I could put it on, make it easy to access no matter who you were. And then I realized that my favorite podcasts, most of them are on SoundCloud. So I was like, and I don't need to monetize with SoundCloud uh, or, or with the podcast at this point. Most of your monetization for the podcast, if you have one, is going to be through a subscription model of some kind or. Um, sponsorships and stuff like that. Now, let's face it, I'm probably not going to get a sponsorship. And I'll be doing this on Twitch. I'll be uploading these to YouTube as well, without the music, because I figured out a way to do that. But my primary outlet's going to be SoundCloud for audio. So those of you that are here will get to just watch and listen and participate, and you know, I'll answer questions when I have time and stuff like that. And there'll usually be Q&As at the end, for sure. But ultimately, I wanted something that... How can I cater to... Me as a personality on Twitch, how can I cater to the needs of a podcast listener? How can I reinvigorate my YouTube channel 
with minimal effort, frankly, um, and hopefully guarantee success. So here we are. So welcome to the first episode of Grind's Head Podcast. My name is Grindhead Jim. I'm your host, and we're talking about whatever the fuck's on my mind. Today, we're talking about the music industry, how it used to be, how it used to operate, and what differences, what influenced those things into what we have today, why today's model is better for the average musician, um, and how, as a musician or as a listener of music, you can benefit from it. So it kind of starts with my background. You know, As a musician, I've, I've been a professional musician at least a third of my life at this point. Um, I started playing drums as early as five, from, according to my mother, because um, they gave me a drum and I would beat the shit out of it. Um, I didn't get really serious about it. Like, well, I really wanted to learn about drums until I was about 12 or 13. Uh, in between there, I did play some alto sax and learn some basic music stuff, things like that. Uh, but my real passion for music came around the age of 10. When I started listening to bands like Tears for Fears, Queen, and almost immediately Metallica and Napalm Death, like all like swirled around. You know, that's why you'll hear, you know, switches like that, you know, from a synth pop band like Gunship to an extreme over the top tech death band or slam core, whatever the fuck name they're called now, Infinite Annihilator. Um, and I like it all. I like it all. Um, but it, I always let that kind of be my influence personally as a musician. So, I always had this stars in the eyes. If you had a, a record album or a um, a CD or a tape or you know something I could buy in the store, you know that was going to be something that uh, was to be aspired to, right? Like it was like this unattainable thing, and um, for me, it, it kind of. It, it was something that I wanted to be. I didn't have no idea how to do it, but I decided I wanted to be there. And so, from the, and this is from a very early age, I was like, I want to do that. I want to entertain people. And I simultaneously had a um, a very strong interest in stand-up comedy, which incidentally also had your record albums and your tapes and your CDs and stuff. So all this stuff, I was kind of like, this is where I want to be. So... Right around the time I'm getting really interested in music, I start interested in getting, you know, playing music. Um, so I'd say that that continued through high school. Uh, graduated high school, and, and I had the opportunity to go to uh, Indiana State University of Pennsylvania, uh, which is Indiana's city and a county in Pennsylvania. It's not, you know, state of Indiana. But uh, I ended up, it was going to be going for art teaching of all things, believe it or not. And I know, right? I never draw anything for you guys, and I probably should at some point on creative. Huh? But um, I ended up at the last second, I'm talking like weeks from graduation going, no, I'm not into it. Like, I'm not doing it. And it was a sweet gig. That's a nice college. Uh, the cafeteria was tight. I was going to be able to uh, live there. You know, it would have been a really, it would have been like the excellent college experience, right? And I just said, fuck, I don't want to do that. 
And they're like, what? Why? Like, I really want to pursue music, like really hardcore. And they supported me, and they said, well, there are some sacrifices you're going to have to make. Um, you won't be able to stay at the college because it's too expensive. You'll have to commute. Um, you know, and, and all this other stuff. So I went and I'm going to the Art Institute of Pittsburgh uh, for music production, and that lasted a semester. Not kidding. I ended up quitting because it just, they, I didn't feel like it was teaching me anything. Um, it was, it definitely was, but I, I learned from those classes I was taking that I was learning more by doing than I was in the classroom. And I was like, why am I paying these motherfuckers? I should just go do it. And uh, so I did. And much to my parents' chagrin, and when they finally found out that I wasn't going to class anymore, and there was other stuff I was doing with my time I shouldn't have been doing. But, um, so I ended up getting really serious around that time, uh, playing shows all the time, doing whatever jobs I could that would work around me being a musician, basically. And ultimately, getting experience with everybody I could and latching on, just, you know, really digging in. So by now, it's 1996, almost a decade later from when I'd really started listening to music. At that point, music was still very much a... Not an old boys network, but at the same time, it was really hard to get in. But the structure at the time was you recorded a demo and you sold it, not necessarily for money, but you'd give it away. You want to get as many people's hands as possible. There's a heavy tape trading um, phenomenon going on at that time where, and this would, anyone who ever listened to anything Metallica's ever put out in terms of a documentary or history, they'll tell you all about fucking tape trading and how it made their fucking career. So you'd make a tape. And you trade it with guys at shows and, and everything else. And so at the end of the day, you wanted to get it in as many people's hands as possible, as quickly as you could. But it was dependent upon your ability to get yourself in front of people. You would also send to uh, distribution centers. You would send to record labels and hope that someone would offer to finance and distribute a full length or an EP or something. And... That was such a far-fetched thing back then, because that was the only avenue. That was it. You know, otherwise, you might be writing to, like, magazines or something like that, trying to get people to write to you and all be done through the mail. There was no internet. There was no access. You know, so like, like a CD collection over here, so many of those CDs were things that have never been on the internet and probably never will. It's weird to think about. Um, so I'm toiling away, I'm toiling away, and... We record our first demo, and the demo ended up costing us something like 500, it was like $587. I know it seems like a really exact number, but that's what I remember in my head. Because we had 500, and we were like, uh, might have been 687, because we had 500, and we were like 187 short, and my parents were able to pay the extra way to get in there. And um, so we finished the demo, which sounded great, but it didn't sound like us. And so, like, we peddled that around, and we thought, like all artists do, that was the best thing in the world, which invariably, folks, spoilers, it isn't the best. Um, so, you know, the band eventually broke up, and I went from band to band to band to band, soaking up, you know, experience, not just in live music, but writing music, 
um, recording techniques because all these guys were trying to record at home because they knew they couldn't afford the studios. So the demo stuff, they had their like eight tracks and stuff. And that was like, if you knew someone had an eight track recorder, like that was the guy you wanted to really, really stick with. You know what I mean? So you would end up um, hanging out with those guys and learning what they did. You pick up a little bit here, you pick up a little there and you know, um, but unless you actually had the equipment and it was always hardware based, you weren't going to do nothing with it. Um, so, you know, by 1999, I'd done various demo recordings of varying degrees of success. Uh, one of my high points, in my opinion, was recording a completely live demo with no rehearsal uh, of me and a cello player. Um, and the cello player had an electronic uh, electric pickup embedded in the cello, and he had an effects pedal layout on the floor. And he would sit there and make crazy noises and stuff because he couldn't play cello traditionally because he had nerve damage in his wrists from a, an accident. Um, but he was like a classically trained professional cellist. So like he knew that that instrument inside and out. And then when you add like this, these sounds to it, plus me just jamming, you know, on this five piece jazz drum kit doing blast beats and shit was really cool. And he had two mics and he did like a quick mix setup, And that was it. I still have the tape. Uh, I actually been in the market. I've been shopping for a decent tape deck so I can digitize most of this stuff and, and have it somewhere. Right. But I digress. So I recorded a bunch of demos. I had a really good idea of like all these varied things that I wanted to do, but no way of breaking into the industry. Like no one had like the, like, like it was all blind luck. It was, were you in the right place at the right time talking to the right people or the right people hearing your shit? And I was fed up with it. And it was no coincidence that I was also broke. And I, so I sidetracked everything. Um, and I ended up actually ended up homeless for quite a while. And a lot of you know the story that I ended up going into the Marine Corps. That's going to be a whole other podcast series, to be honest with you. Um, and when I come out of the Marines, even in the Marines, I'd done a couple of recordings, believe it or not, um, which were, again, varying degrees of success and so forth. But I, I moved to Chicago specifically to pursue, I'm like, if I'm going to do music, I, I got to do it now. Because I was in, uh, at that point, I would have been in uh, my late 20s. And to me, it was like, well, it's got to go now. And I was right. So I went to Chicago on, under the auspicions of, of this one band I was going to join. And I was in that band for like three weeks. <laughs> the band never, ever rematerialized. They uh, did get back together with a different guy. Played maybe three shows? Maybe? And, um, that was that. And, um, you know, it was just a matter of like the, the guy who was in charge of that band just really wasn't really interested in doing it, uh, which was fine. But through him, I met the guys I would later get into a band with called Cardiac Arrest. And although I'd started a project that didn't quite gel, we were now... I was well into my cardiac arrest them, right? So by now, we're talking about it's 2004. The internet has been a thing. And for a long time, the tradition was you record your album if you're an established band or you record your demos and you put the MP3s up on your website for people to download. 
And I will never forget the first MP3 that I ever downloaded. And it was uh, Origin. It was a song called Portal on the uh, III album. And I, <laughs> I had 24K dial-up. Or... Wait, let me think. 28K? 28K. But it took like 25 minutes to download one song. And it was glorious. And uh, I never ever thought it would get to where it, it is now. I ended up getting to a point where I had digitized my entire CD collection, which literally took months because I have so many. Uh, and the CD burners were slower at the time, right? And then, because I, I couldn't find them anywhere else. You know, little did I know that in a few years, every album I own, for, with very few exceptions, would be on the internet to download. It would have saved me a lot of effort. When I got uh, broadband and so forth, I started really like looking around at how things were working. And this is when MySpace first became a thing. Um, and MySpace was the first place that music was being shared freely. Um, in terms of streaming music and, and saying, this is me, we're pushing this forward. There were some artists that would take advantage of like Napster or LimeWire, and they would put out their albums and they would, it would put it in a zip file with another song you wanted. Like, if you wanted, like, a Metallica song, you'd get that, but you'd also get their album and shit. Very guerrilla stuff, but I never listened to that shit. And neither did anyone I knew. It didn't really work. So we used MySpace. We, we, you know, we would record a demo, uh, again, at our expense. Take the CDs, print them, give them out at shows, but also we'd put things on the internet and let, just let, give it to them for free and let them hear it. And it was because of this instant gratification, this instant way of talking to virtually anyone uh, over the internet that we finally did get signed to a very small label. Um, and things just kind of blew up from there. And it, it was one of these things where I was in close to a dozen bands by that point, if not more, really, if I think about it. Um, that had played shows of similar size, had rubbed elbows with just as powerful people, but for whatever reason, this particular band at that particular time, because we were able to reach out to more people and show that we had a following worldwide, were able to prove that we were going to make it. And so you go from being out in the middle of nowhere in terms of the music industry, anyway, not having a fan base outside of your local area, not a big one anyway, um, and having to rely on mail and blind luck. And then, you know, 10 years later, to being able to reach out to virtually anyone at any time and get your music in front of them. And then it just being a matter of a little less blind luck. And it's interesting because now... You don't even have to rely, and that was fucking 13 years ago. And then, because we were like, oh, wow, we got signed, we got a label and shit. That was the worst thing I ever did in terms of my music career. Um, because we signed away rights to the record for, I think it was, I want to say 10 years. And the reason I say that is because it came out in 2007, and this year it's being released on vinyl. Um, of which I'm seeing no money from, by the way. 
which is fine. I, I didn't ask for it, and I'm not going to. However, I have a, you know, get merch free card forever, which is also awesome. Um, but we didn't understand the market we were in at the time. You know, the people that were distributing our records, they knew that the future was digital. So the distribution deal that our labels had were through like CD Baby and a couple other places where um, they reserved rights for like iTunes and shit. And you were basically signing away your rights to the digital stuff. The label and the band. So as far as I know, the label's not even making money off of that at this point. Which is weird if you think about it. But, um, like, you can find my old band on YouTube, like, YouTube Music, like, the re-uploaded, like, the nice tracks and shit. Um, now, for that, I know the label's getting money. I'm not getting any. Um, I don't necessarily want the money. All I ever wanted from music was to be appreciated as an artist. And I got that out of music when I left it. But for a lot of people, this is their livelihood, right? Um, I tried to make a living at it. I know that I couldn't. Maybe if I had it to do over again or it was just a few years later, I'd be saying a different thing. But here's what's different. Today, what you can do is really compelling in as much as you can... Um, you can create your own music. You can put it wherever you want. You can monetize it yourself. You can advertise it yourself, all at minimal cost, without ever involving anybody else. So, you know, even back in the early 2000s, the mid, you know, 2000s, the aughts, if you will, we were reliant on recording studios, and they're recording a new album right now, and they're still going to a recording studio of, you know, someone else's. But many people that we were recording with were musicians in their own right that just happened to take the time to buy the tech, to learn the software, and get it done. Um, so, and depending upon what kind of music you compose, um, and I think this is a reason that dubstep, for example, is so huge, I could, I could make a dubstep album right here. Very easily, if I wanted to. I don't, I don't want to. <laughs> but, um, because it's all electronics, all on the computer, and it's free or low cost to make it. And then you upload it to YouTube, and you upload it to SoundCloud or, or whatever, and suddenly your shit's out there. And it's just a matter of people finding it. And it's not that hard. There are people that will just go nuts trying to find shit. And it's all about, you know, your SEO, your search engine optimization skills and tagging stuff and, you know, pasting it every fucking where. And it, it's, um, it is infinitely easier to get started but if you have a little more drive a little more passion and you're willing to do the work which I would argue is actually harder work than loading in and playing a show uh, you can get somewhere you know there are people that made their entire you know career online you know you, you take a person like Rebecca Black who didn't rainy. yeah that was recorded in the studio but it was YouTube that made her what she is both a laughing stock and a viable income. Like, she's making money off that shit to this day. You're like, you gotta hear this fucking shitty ass song. You know, um, Chocolate Rain, Gangnam Style, the list goes on. People that are, that are making like 
they, they at least were making money hand over fist because of a fluke. But they would never have had that opportunity in the climate 10 years ago or, you know, 20 years ago. Would never have happened, right? So, you know, but the thing is, what's funny to me about the industry now is that people are still, for some reason, really after that record deal still. The problem is that record companies are even less likely to sign you now because there's more risk involved because they sell less. Unless they're smart and they, you know, go digital and stuff. Um, you know, labels that I was really into, um, they have persevered because they've embraced digital. So you'll see, like, um, lyric videos and uh, even Metallica put out every single song from their record in one form or another online for free. Hoping people would still buy the record. You know what they fucking did? Um, so when Metallica, the guys who were against Napster from the in onset and were so anti-internet, you know, now they're on Spotify. Now they have, like, they're in full control of their catalog and they're monetizing it their way because they finally figured it out. Like, it's going to get out there whether we want it to or not, but if we're in control of it, we might make a little bit of money back that we were otherwise losing. So I think that today's artist has a lot more to gain from just embracing technology, staying independent, and putting things out there, which is way better <laughs> than sitting at home thinking you're the best fucking thing in the world and then waiting for someone to discover you rather than finding you discovering ways to make yourself relevant. Like that's, that's the way that I look at it. Um, you know, as I sit here, like I'm looking at implements in front of me that I keep meaning to write a new record on. And I know that I could easily do it. My goal is to make the song or rather make the album, uh, put it out on either Bandcamp or SoundCloud or both for little to no cost. Um, and make it free and never perform live. That's the goal. Napster is a free ripping site. Um, so like what Napster used to be, okay, let me, let me take, take you back. Let me take you back to like 99. Um, what Napster was, if you ripped a CD, you could up, you could upload it. People, it was like, it was like torrenting before there was torrenting, right? And it was all music sharing. It was peer-to-peer. -peer. It was the first of its kind. There were other softwares like SoulSeek and stuff, which aped it. And then when Torrenting came out, it pretty much killed that kind of software. But Napster eventually became um, a legit place to sell music. But, but Metallica came out against them because they were like, why the fuck? Like, you're, you're literally stealing from us. And although they weren't wrong, the way they went about it was completely against it. Um, but ultimately, like, they just didn't understand what the fans wanted, and they didn't embrace the technology, which is why the, the, the pirating became so popular, and still is, but to a lesser degree, I feel. Um, there was no revenue to be taken from them other than you just get the music for free. They weren't, like, reappropriate. They weren't charging for the albums or anything. But, um, you know, that's why that, for me, was the big paradigm shift in the industry was because of the fact that the industry became, we have to play catch-up now. 
how do we get our music in the hands of people? How do we get them away from Napster, basically? And that's where the MP3s going on the websites came from. That's where MySpace came from. That's where, you know, SoundCloud, Bandcamp, all these things. But what happened was, in the industry's attempt to take the power out of people's hands, you know, to keep a stranglehold on the industry, they actually gave people more power uh, to create and distribute on their own without the need of a label. So now the label has to compete with the independent musician, and the only thing they have that's different is the marketing power and the marketing money. And, you know, whether that's radio play or uh, sponsored YouTube videos or whatever, some people that's going to appeal to and some people it isn't. Um, I would argue that if you're making pop music to begin with, it's unlikely that you're going to be um, too worried about your integrity as an independent artist. Um, it's just not the way it goes. Uh, but if you're making, you know, hip-hop or hardcore punk or metal or dubstep or you know, anything outside of that, you know, stuff, um, you're going to want to use that technology and push it your own agenda and do things on your terms because you can. Especially if people start to like what you do. Um, and if they like what you do, you can then prove to somebody else that wants to make money off of you I don't need you, you know, lower your number, you know, cause maybe someone wants to, to market you, but it's like, well, I don't need you right now kind of thing. And, and that's where it, it is now. Even 10 years ago, you would need as much intervention as possible. It's just a matter of, um, just being savvy to the way the industry is going and, and, and trying to get yourself in front of people by being savvy of just the art of the internet itself. I would argue now that the only reason that you want to be on a label, and even this is arguable, is tour support, uh, merchandising, and... Uh, oh, yeah, as a file format, they absolutely were around uh, MP3s. It wasn't something that people were... Um, fully aware of, like, on a large scale. Like, Napster's what busted the door is wide open as far as uh, recognition of, of the technology and the ability to use it. Um, yeah, I, but I would say, but again, we're talking mainstream, mind you. Um, you know, it, you know, file compression in general was something that the average person just didn't understand. And also, let's not forget that a lot of people didn't want to sit in front of their computer to listen to music. The, in the MP3 player, the ability to rip to CD, not everyone had that. Like, shit, I didn't even have my first CD burner until 2001. Um, and I'm an avid music dude. So, from my perspective, and from many people's perspective, like, that was when it became evident, okay, we have to start changing things. Um, but I would, again, argue that now we're talking about just a, a lot more avenues instead of like having to go with one lane of traffic to get to people you can pick your battles you can decide i want to go on one thing i can go on a bunch of things podcasting is the same way um where you have a choice and you have control of how your music is going to get out there um or even if you're just a fan and you listen to music and you want to make sure other people will hear it 
I can click on Twitter and get it out there. I could uh, click on Facebook or Reddit or LinkedIn or whatever. Be like, yo. Granted, I don't see a lot of, yo, check out this fucking dank ass shit on LinkedIn. I really don't. <laughs> you just don't see it. But um, the opportunity is there, right? So this idea that the ability to create and share is there now without having to involve a third party in the way that I had to and many other musicians had to do uh, back in the proverbial uh, day. So but one of the things I think is the most pertinent is the ability to create like at a computer with minimal cost because back, you know, 10, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you had to have like a MIDI keyboard and all this other stuff. And um, you had to, you had to know a lot more, you had more hardware you needed to. Like right now, you could easily use a, a regular keyboard as a MIDI controller and write music. It's not optimal, but it can be done. Um, so from chat, we see uh, Blight Me. Napster and other places to me were more due to Apple's draconic EULA uh, and the want to have it our way. Yeah, but the thing is, you have to understand that a lot of that stuff, at least, again, mainstream culture, like, people didn't, weren't aware of a lot of that stuff. Um, like, for example, like, if you wanted to use, back in the day, if you wanted to use an iPod for music, you had, it had to be in their format, you had to buy from their store. That was it. That was the deal. So, a lot of people would buy a third-party generic MP3 player, that's why they were so popular, in my opinion. I agree with you. I, I think that uh, proprietary file formats attempted to kill the open free market. I'm grateful that they did not. Um, you know, and as long as people continue to just keep putting stuff out there, I think we're going to be fine. Um, you know, and now it becomes kind of a, how do you, it, it's no longer how do you get your music in front of people, it's how do you protect your investment, which is, you know, good and bad. It's a good and bad problem to have, right? So, if I put my music on SoundCloud, there is software out there that people can just rip it right off. I mean, if you're patient enough, you could just open up SoundCloud, open up OBS, hit record, or, you know, Audacity, hit record, record your desktop music, and then you got MP3 of it. If you really want to. I don't recommend it. I don't condone that because that's fucking illegal. Um, but it can be done. So it, it, it's something that you, as an artist, you have to decide, okay, I want to have my music be for free, or I want to charge for it, or I'll take some of it. It's all a matter of, of knowing that those challenges are coming and being able to say, here's how I want to deal with it, right? So, you know, but to me, that also creates a dilemma. You almost have too many solutions to the problem, if that makes sense. Um, where someone just coming in out of nowhere that wants to play music, they may not know about a lot of the avenues that are out there. But again, still a good problem to have. But I do believe that the, the heart of the music industry is always going to be that guy who is, or gal, 
who is in their garage or in their room or at school strumming a guitar for the first time hitting a drum, whatever, or someone experiencing experimenting with you know electronic music at home, uh, just kind of finding their way. Like that's where it's at, as far as I'm concerned. Um, that's that's the big thing. But people also tend to have like these road colors glasses for bands like the Beatles, Black Sabbath, um, you know, um, even later bands like Metallica, Gun N' Roses, stuff like that, and having this idea that that's still the the aspiration. I will tell you that playing live music in front of large amounts of people is a thrill. Uh, but it's a fucking slog. It's a fucking pain in the ass. Um, and you can get just as much, you know, ethereal adulation from people um, just listening to it online and stuff like that. Because the... the I mean, ultimately, the, 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 the problem that I have is that the ex- people don't understand how much of an expense playing live music can be. Um, you know, we were making a, a decent amount of money on the road when we were touring. But we was going right back into the tour. Like, I'd come home owing money because I wasn't able to pay my rent while I was gone. In fact, the biggest tour I ever went on, I had to go to friends to borrow money to pay the rent while I was gone. Because I knew I wouldn't have any money coming back. And that's, like, as the, th- the problem became that... <laughs> The further along you go, the bigger venues you play, the more it costs to play there, the more it costs to get to like wider places and stuff. You know, you know, we went from Oregon to Texas to New York and back around the whole time hoping we'd make enough money to get to the next place. Legitimately. Uh we had a uh British Petroleum a BP credit card for gas for emergencies we maxed that fucking thing on tour we didn't make enough money even with pre-sales and everything else it was it was brutal so you know you, you look at like larger productions and they're like oh they must be making a lot of money look at the show well you know what it costs to put on a show like that like you know madonna or iron maiden or whatever they've got like scores of people making those shows happen and it's the bigger you get, the more it costs to do what you do and, and to get the effect in the show that people are expecting from you. And people, when they start making music, don't understand that. Um, that's why I'm so enthusiastic about the kind of underground nature of, you know, free music. Not necessarily free music, but like you can put your music anywhere you want. And one of the things I think electronic music gets right, you know, people talk about going to like a, a, a fucking dubstep show and I'm like what you mean a rave light? It's a rave with less drugs and 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 really it is because it, you know someone shows up they hit play and you know you basically you're DJing an album for your fans. But what I like about that is it's a real world gathering of people um that essentially uh it's it's like a party for people that are fans of your of your act. There's a lot less cost involved with that, ultimately, because you can be one person with, a, with equipment that fits inside of a suitcase and do a whole show. And that's awesome, right? Um, I saw a hip-hop uh, tour come through earlier this year, 
I'm not a huge hip hop, modern hip hop guy anyway. It was B. Dolan and a bunch of people that came with him. And it was great. It's basically, they had a turntable and a mixer and a couple mics. That's it. And everyone, and I do mean everyone on that tour, was in their own little vehicle, like a little car or something. It's beautiful. You didn't have to worry about towing vehicles. You didn't have to worry about like renting stuff. Gas wasn't a huge cost because, again, you weren't towing all this crazy amounts of uh, stuff. If people needed to play on certain shows, they could versus not. It was all, you know, um, flexible and, and organic. And I loved that. Um, and I thought, okay, so this is kind of like the hybrid. Uh, you know, versus, you know, these live bands that have big drum sets and guitars and amps and basses and egos the size of a house. Um, I like the idea, again, that because technology has evolved to where you can make things more compact, it makes more sense in the long run. Um, You know, does that mean that if I were 20 years younger... That I have an easier time of it now? I don't think so. Can you make more of a name for yourself and potentially make a living off of your music easier in today's day and age? Yes. Depending upon your genre, though, you may be forced to be on the road to do that because album sales aren't as high as they used to be. Uh, Your streaming services like Google and iTunes and so forth take a large cut of those sales. Marketing is still a huge cost. So the only way that you can really make money, again, depending upon the genre of music that you play, um, in the traditional sense, is to tour. And you sell merch. You make money on the road. But you got to have, like, big shows. And again, it's that big cycle, like, as you get bigger, this stuff like that. Still better than it used to be, because at least there's more opportunity for more bands to do that. Um, but lightning still has to strike because it, while anyone can make music, that creates a saturated market, right? So now there's a saturation factor that wasn't there 10, 20 years ago. At least not as much saturation as there is now. I mean, there's hundreds of metal bands that I'll never hear that are probably really good. But I do have a, a strong sense that the majority of the bands that I should be hearing that I would would appeal to me is getting in front of me for the most part. Um, but there's always going to be somebody that I miss, and and that's kind of depressing. So like fans almost have to make finding new music their full time job or a part time job at least. You know, I okay on Thursday at you know one p.m. I'm gonna go looking for new shit, right? And there's avenues to do that. Um, and yeah, Silver, like you have to protect your IP. Like this is your intellectual property. Um, but granted, there's more information about how to do that. The cost behind doing that is lower than it used to be. It used to be back in the day, you had to have a lawyer. You had to pay that lawyer. Versus if you do a little bit of research on copyright law and, and trademarking and just get that shit done, you're good. Like that's pretty much it. Um, so it kind of... You know, there's there's different ways to approach it for sure. Um, but I got you know my my old drum set out in the living room, you know, twenty feet away or whatever. I don't even know how far it is. 
But it's been in bags since would have been March of 2011. I haven't come out except to like clean them once in a while. I'll take them out, get them, dust them off, make sure the bags are okay and stuff. Um, I don't use them. You know, anything that I do demo or write, I do on the computer. And I'm demoing stuff um, when I have time, which is never. Uh, I will eventually, when I really sit down and really get like the sounds out that I want to use, I am going to write the next record on stream, on a creative stream. Right, but... And I, and I remember that whole thing, like, you're like intellectual property is a joke, ask me all ice, whoever owns rights to Queen. Queen does now. They eventually got that, those rights back. Um, but the, you have to understand that part of the reason behind that controversy is that those were questions that had never been raised before. Sampling was brand fucking new at the time. And no one knew how to deal with it from a fair use point of view. No one knew how to deal with it from a uh, plagiaristic or, or copyright. Like, it didn't seem like, where is the artistic line drawn, right? Because, you know, I'll, I'll give you a great example. In my opinion, this is a good example. You know, a few years after that, uh, the band that I was in, the one that had the demo that, um, that we had to borrow the money to get that done, when we first started writing music for that project, we wrote a riff that was great. It was awesome. And we had a whole, we made this whole song around it. It was perfect. Like it was like, this is exactly what we want to sound like. This is awesome. Two days later, two days later, Fear Factory comes out with their second album called Demanufacture. I fucking swear. <laughs> The first song and the ninth song each had riffs from the song that we had written. It was simple, and it was just a matter of time before someone wrote those riffs, but we didn't know, because by then they had already written that song. Because the, the album was, was being released, they already had uh, ASCAP filings and all that stuff. So had we come out and recorded and released the song even a couple days later the assumption would be that we stole it from them. Um, but it was really weird. Because, like, not even two months after that, Suffocation released an album that had an extremely similar riff. It was slightly different. And it was clear that they were in production at the same time that Fear Factory was, right? Uh, and they were even on the same label. But they were on two different parts of the country. Um, Factories on the West Coast and Suffo's on the East Coast. And again, it just goes to show you that three separate entities came up with very similar stuff within a few months of each other. You know. Um, so, and then you, you take, and that's just people coming up with shit in their head. When you add the, the, the problems and the complications of sampling into it, um, that's when it becomes something that it's a gray area, and it still is, in my opinion. Um, so, what are you going to do? Um, do I think that Vanilla Ice needed to be more straightforward about what he was doing? Yeah, I do. 
But I think that he was towing a company line because lawyers are like, fuck them. They don't, there's no law in place right now that says you can't do that. There is now, <laughs> but wasn't, there wasn't then, not really. Um, there wasn't stealing a whole song. And so now if you just say, I sampled this and you give them, you know, uh, credit or whatever, it's okay. But I don't think you have that anywhere near as much as you used to. Because now there's a whole industry of people that just create beats, grooves, loops for people. And that's a lucrative market in and of itself. Someone who will never get credit for their work in a real publishing sense. You pay them, you know, five, ten, fifty, five hundred bucks for their loop or whatever, and you put that on your record, they never have to pay you another dime again. But that's if you make enough of them, you know, you'll you'll make ends meet eventually. Um, and you can't really do that in uh, the more organic stuff like rock or metal or blues. You can't. There's not really a way to do that. I think this the 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 version of that is like a session musician who comes in and plays stuff for you. Um, but again, you have an opportunity now where there was no way that was going to happen uh, back then. So, but I, I feel like it is that, like, so now the argument is when is too much? When is opportunity too much? When is there too many places you could point yourself? And, I don't know that we're to that point, and I feel like there's just less of a chance of someone taking advantage of you if you you can maintain control of your product in a, a much larger way. Um, yes, the risk still exists for people to steal and stuff like that. Um, that's always going to be there, because if a motherfucker wants to be a criminal, they're always going to have that opportunity, right? Um, and that's not avoidable. People are... Um, it, it, it's just kind of you know, the nature of the beast, as it were. So, to me, it, it, we're just at a, a place where you have the opportunity to do, she should go out there and just be a musician um, and work hard at it. So, uh, that's pretty much all that I have to say on the subject right now. Uh, I wanted to just word vomit at you guys um, about... Music, where it's been, where it's going. Uh, we can always go more in depth on any of these subjects later, and we absolutely can. Uh, but for now, that's all I had. So that's all that's in Grind's head for today. So I thank you for joining the podcast. Uh, we'll see you next time. Cheers. <laughs>